Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. Ignorance can be quite dangerous, and it can get you killed. 
especially when it comes to not knowing one's enemies. Battles and entire wars, in fact, have been lost simply because one side did not know their enemy. And when it comes to spirituality, there is a great war taking place that all too often the church does not seem to know who its enemies are and what tactics they use and how to defeat those enemies. And today we're going to start a series looking at that very idea. Who is our enemy? How does he operate? What tactics does he use? What is his mind? We'll be taking an in-depth look at his nature, at the tools that he's most fond of, and the ways in which we may defeat him. And the first lesson in knowing our enemy is identification, proper identification of the enemy, identifying who we are fighting. If you don't know your enemies and who they are, then you'll never be able to prevail against them. So who are our enemies? The Bible says that there is a spiritual enemy, an adversary named Satan, which is a word from Hebrew pronounced in the original uh, language, something like Satan. Uh, the word literally means adversary, accuser, or most frequently, the adversary or accuser. It's used as a proper name. So who is this accuser, this adversary, this enemy? Who is Satan? Well, Satan is a created being. He is not a god. He is not an eternal power. He is a created being. Supernatural, yes. Angelic, yes. And powerful, yes. But not eternal and not all-powerful. This is important because one of the main ways that Christianity differs from so many of the other world religions is that we're not dualistic. We don't believe in two eternal powers, one good and one evil. Okay? That's a very Star Wars mentality, and it makes for great story, but that's not how our religion works. We don't believe in eternal power struggle between good and evil, between the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. We believe that good will triumph over evil once and for all, and that evil is not eternal. It's a very important difference. Because in the systems that are dualistic, these two eternal powers, the light and the dark, the good and the evil, they're in this eternal power struggle that's cyclical, and it never ends, and there's never a happy ending, ever. Good may win today, but tomorrow evil will win, because there always has to be a cosmic balance that's struck between good and evil, between light and dark. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible shows clearly that God does not share um, many of his attributes with his creations. Foremost among them are his eternal attributes, such as omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and eternality. Satan is a created being. He will not exist, or he has not existed forever, and he will not win in the end. He is not eternal. So very important that we get that. He is ultimately a created being who is subject to the rule and reign of the eternal God. That's very important for us to understand. Satan is under God's rule. He must ultimately obey God. We see a picture of this in Job when Satan actually has to ask permission to conduct certain activities in relation to Job. He has to ask God's permission. You see, you see that? It's odd, isn't it? Strange. Yet, it shows us that he is under God's sovereignty. So just what, or rather who, is Satan? Where does he come from? What's his backstory? 
We know who, uh, who he is. We know he's a supernatural being, but did God create him as he is to torment this world, or did something go terribly wrong? Well, while some scholars think that Satan was created intentionally as an evil in this world, the vast majority of them don't think that. The vast majority of them believe that Satan is a sinner, not a uh, created evil, but rather a being that was created good who chose evil. Now, I have to mention uh, a fact that some scholars actually disbelieve in Satan altogether as, an, as a being. They believe that he is a manifestation, that he is a personification of evil, that we as humanity, we need a boogeyman. And so we created this idea of Satan, this uh, personification of evil, to give us something to fight against. That's absolute rubbish. It's absolute hogwash that, that is absolutely not based on scripture at all. When we, uh, when we do our studies, we must always base it on scripture. It's a funny idea to think about Satan as a personified version of evil when we actually see a personal being in scripture. Otherwise... The only thing that you're left with is to assume that Jesus is crazy. Because remember, when Jesus is tempted, who's he talking to? Satan. If Satan's not a real being, Jesus is out there talking to himself. Cuckoo. So that's your only two options. Now, Satan's a real being. He is a real being who was created by God. And I believe in accordance with the vast majority of scholarship, that Satan was in fact an angel who sinned and was cast out of heaven. And these scholars that I tend to agree with, uh, the more that I study the several passages of scripture that reference it, they show a big spiritual context behind it all. I want to take a look at several passages of scripture. We're going to hop around a little bit, so kind of bear with me. Uh, they'll be up on the screen. You can also find them for yourself, um, but uh, we're going to hop around a little bit. One of these passages that helps to give us a picture of Satan is from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. And it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, immediately we know in the context that Isaiah is referring to the king of Babylon. This passage, though, I believe has two meanings. Scripture is often layered. It often has an immediate meaning, an immediate context, but there's often as well a bigger context. We see this in multiple places in the Old Testament where various prophets and leaders like David and others are speaking about their immediate situation but also, too, God is using their words to talk about a future time, a future coming of Messiah, or even the ultimate return of the Messiah in the final day of the Lord. I believe this passage is multi-layered. It's not just about the king of Babylon, it's about Satan. And according to 
Wayne Grudem, the notable theologian and seminary professor and author of the very hefty volume, Systematic Theology, which is about Yathik. Uh, it's not, this is a direct quote from his book, that book, Systematic Theology. It is not uncommon for Hebrew prophetic speech to pass from descriptions of human events to descriptions of heavenly events that are parallel to them and that the earthly events picture in a limited way. That's one of the foremost biblical experts in the world, one of the foremost experts on theology, who's written a volume this thick that's used as a textbook teaching theology. And he says, it's not uncommon in prophetic speech to do this very process, where you're talking about both the immediate and something bigger spiritual that's going on at the same time, and you pass from one to the other. If he is correct, and I think he is, this passage shows us that Satan is a created spiritual being, an angel of some kind, who was originally created to serve and glorify God. Now, some translations render it a little bit different than the ESV that I just read from. Some will translate Odaystar as a other proper name, such as Lucifer, which many of you have definitely heard, I'm sure, in reference to Satan before. This day star, Lucifer, Satan, was cast out of heaven at some point in the distant past between the end of the original creation of the world and Genesis 3. Now, this is important. There's a couple big points to note about, note about this. Something happens between Genesis 1 and 3. We know this because in the beginning, God created everything and he said that it was good. Everything was good. Not just some things, everything was good. When creation was finally finished, when seventh day of creation is done, God's like, it's great, love it. Even humanity. But then something happens, because in Genesis 3, we see a change. We see something radically different take place. Now, full disclosure, I'm an old earth creationist. I believe that the earth is very, very old and that a great deal of time passes between the days of creation and the fall of man. I believe a great deal of time passes between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Possibly billions, trillions, or more years. And here's why. What would it matter if billions and trillions of years passed? What would it matter? It doesn't matter to God. God doesn't age. It doesn't matter to Adam and Eve because they don't age yet either. Because there's no such thing as aging. Aging deals with what? Decay. It deals with death, ultimately. I know we don't like to think about that. But that's ultimately what it is. Our body's aging is that they are decaying and slowly dying. Which is an effect of sin. They're not aging yet. Not until sin enters the world. There's no reason to count years. People say, oh, well, Adam and Eve only lived to like 900 or some years. That's only counting after they start aging. There's no reason to count years when you don't age. I think a long time passes. And I think Adam and Eve enjoy a long time knowing one another and walking with God and getting to know the world that God created I think they get to name all the animals. They get to play with all the animals. And here's a funny thing. And I don't know this for absolute certain from the text. I think the animals talked. I think they had a great deal of fun with the animals. And here's why I think that. Because when, the Satan, when Satan comes up as a serpent to Adam and Eve and starts talking to them, 
they're not freaked out by it. Did you ever notice that and wonder? Like, it's a talking snake! Ah! Like, I'd run away from it! You know? Like, it freaked me out a little bit. But they don't! They think it's normal! Like, oh, it's a talking snake. That's bizarre! But they don't think so. So I think the animals are talking. They're all having a great time. It's a glorious, wonderful existence. Up until when Satan comes along. Something has to happen during that time period, during that long time period. Furthermore, I think during this long time period, we see that something happens from other texts of Scripture. That during this, this period between creation and the fall of man, that we see other things happen in Scripture from passages like Luke 10.18, where Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Interesting, isn't it? God in the flesh says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus saw it. That gives us some great insight into who Satan is. That he was in heaven at one point. Well, who's in heaven? There's a very limited number of beings in heaven. Okay? It's God and his angels and possibly those who have died and gone to be with God before. Those who have been taken to be with God which is very few. That's about it. Not really a whole lot of options for who can be there. Furthermore, we see John writes in, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, that he saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and that he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Interesting. Who, who do we know in relation to the bottomless pit? Satan. That's about it. Here's the kicker. Satan isn't alone when he's cast out of heaven. John also writes in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 17. And you can read the whole thing, the whole account of this later. I'm not going to read the whole portion. Uh, but uh, you can read this passage um, where John writes that he saw a war in heaven. He says that in this war in heaven, that one of the very few named angels he saw, we're told of only a handful of, uh, about three or four um, named angels um, in Scripture. And Michael is one of them. Michael, this archangel, as some people call him, uh, waged war against Satan, we're told, in chapter 12 of Revelation. And Satan is pictured as a dragon in this text. In verses 3 and 4, we see that the dragon sweeps his tail through the sky. A lot of symbolic imagery here. He sweeps his tail through the sky. What is the sky typically a reference to? being above us, the heavens, okay, sweeps his tail through the heavens, and he brings down one-third of the stars with him. Now, what are stars typically used as in Revelation? If you can remember back to our very long study of the book of Revelation, our 24, 25-week study of Revelation, can you remember what stars were symbolic of? Angels. He takes a third of the stars with him. He takes a third of the angels with him. Now, we don't have a clue about the number of angels, okay? We're not told anything about that in the text. But what we do seem to see here in Revelation is that Satan has a war in heaven and that he somehow manages to convince a third of the angels that it's a good idea to turn their backs on God. That gives us an interesting insight into our enemy, Satan, doesn't it? Think about how convincing 
Satan would have to be in his lies to convince a third of the angelic beings who have been in the presence of the almighty and eternal God that, hey, we need to start a coup. We're going to have a little rebellion. We're all going to meet for coffee in room 102. So if you want to meet down there, we're all going to get together and talk about this. Think about how convincing that pitch would have to be that we should rebel against God. We should rebel against our maker and king. You'd have to be a pretty good liar. The Isaiah passage seems to show rebellion as well. See, we see the picture of war in Revelation. and When we look at Isaiah in conjunction with this, we see that there is a pattern developing that war against God is rebellion. It's disobedience. And Isaiah says that this day star, this Lucifer, set himself up to be God. He set himself up saying, I should be worshipped. I should be adored. And he rebelled against the Almighty. Interesting. It shows us a picture that this Satan, this created being, this once angel who glorified God, tries to elevate himself to the position of honor and worship that is due God alone. He tries to place himself on the same level as his creator. And he seems to convince the other, some of the other angelic beings to join him in his sin. This shows just how crafty and devious he is. Satan's not a moron. He's not stupid. It bothers me to no end when I see some of the t-shirts that we've produced in the Christian world. Guys, I love a good funny t-shirt, but don't buy something that's not theologically correct. And it's not theologically correct to think that Satan's stupid. I've seen all kinds of t-shirts in recent years. Satan's a moron. Satan's stupid. Satan's dumb. No, he's not. Satan is intelligent. He's devious. He is crafty. He's conniving. And he's evil. Don't underestimate your enemy. That is a dangerous thing to do. We should not make too much of Satan. And we shouldn't make too little of him. But rather rightly understand him as scripture portrays him, that he is a brilliant tactician and manipulator. He is clever. He has a lot of knowledge, but he's not very wise. See, God is the author of all wisdom. And if someone was wise, they would know that rebelling against an eternal God is not going to produce victory. Many theologians have said that Satan's great sin was his pride, was his hubris. To think that he could be on the same level as God, and that's certainly not a bad way of putting it, to be honest. Because Satan doesn't try, uh, he, he doesn't, he, excuse me, he seems to try to draw followers and worshipers to himself. He seems to not understand the only one who deserves worship is God. He seems to deceive not only others, but himself. He tries to draw not only the angels, but people, humanity, to himself. He tries to deceive them and convert them to his side. And we see this in all manner of pagan religions that develop after the fall of man. And make no mistake, these pagan religions, while they're not based on truth, they certainly have power behind them. One of the things that we've done a great disservice to in 
the, in Western Christianity is we have terribly underestimated the power of pagan religions. We've terribly underestimated Satan's power to work through those who will follow him. Satan is supernatural, and he has great power. It's kind of like, I don't know if you're a big comic book fan or not, or if you've ever watched the Superman movies, but Superman, on his home planet of Krypton, does he have superpowers? No. When he's with other people of his own caliber, of his own kind, he's not powerful at all. But when he comes to Earth, he's very powerful. Satan in God's presence is nothing. But when he comes to Earth, he's got some power. He's supernatural. He's beyond us. We're natural. We are a part of this world. Satan is other than this physical world. Therefore, he has some power. And what limited power he has, he has used to empower the cults. He has used to empower the pagan religions. And he's used to draw people away. So why is this so bad? Why is Satan pictured as the bad guy? Why is it so bad to rebel against God? Why is it so bad? Why is it that we need to think of Satan as our enemy? Especially, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you think, why is this a big deal to me? He's not my enemy. Because your God's not my God. Here's the thing. Satan's your enemy whether you know it or not. Satan is the enemy of all mankind whether you believe it or not. Satan has made himself the enemy of God and of life. Thus he is the enemy of humanity. And as humans, we have a long history when it comes to Satan. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when Satan, who disguises himself as a serpent, comes first uh, excuse me, to the first man and woman, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Satan's already been cast out of his position in heaven at this point. He's already guilty of sin, but sin has not infected or affected this world yet because we had not sinned yet. So Adam and Eve don't know anything about this, but they're about to. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he tempts them to do that which they were commanded not to do. Eat from the one tree in the Garden of Eden. Every other tree given fair, uh, fair play for. God says you can eat from all of them, you can use all of them, just not that one. Because surely, when you taste of it, you will know death. Let's take a look at the biblical account, see what Satan does. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired for, uh, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Satan slithers on up and proceeds to do what he seems to do best. He lies. 
and he convinces others to join him in his sin and rebellion. Satan starts messing with Eve's head, saying, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice what he set up there. He's already lying. Even in asking a question, he's lying. He's setting up a false premise. God didn't say that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. He makes a false statement in his question. It's not just misleading, it's downright a lie intended to call God's character into question. Did God really hold all this good stuff back from you? That's what we must know about Satan as we proceed in the following weeks, that Satan, demons, and all those who rally to his banner are liars. In fact, lying is so deeply ingrained in Satan's identity that when Jesus speaks of Satan, he says in the last part of John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Other versions translate a little bit different. They say that when Satan lies, he is speaking his native tongue. Satan uses lies more than any other tool in his arsenal because they hide the truth. They obscure reality. And when we buy into lies, we will ourselves begin to perpetuate them. For example, how many of you have heard the lie in recent years, even though it's not a recent lie, that science and Christianity are at odds, that they're at war? Anybody heard that lie? It's been promoted by people in the scientific community for ages. And that Christians, they're so backward that they believe that the earth was flat and persecuted all of these scientists. And you probably heard even Christian teachers say that and say, we as Christians, we need to apologize for the errors of our forefathers. Here's the thing. That's a lie. It's a lie. We never taught a flat earth dogma as an official teaching of the church, ever. Do you know where it came from? It came from a couple of atheists. I want to show you a couple of pictures. This is John William Draper and Washington Irving. John William Draper wrote a book titled The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science back in the 1800s. In this book, he lied and created for the first time in publication the idea that Christians and religion were behind the persecution of science saying that Christians invented this idea of the flat earth and they persecute all the scientists and that, you know, science and religion are at war. He invented the idea with Washington Irving's help and they wrote this book. And since then, this lie has been promoted that science and Christianity are at odds. They are not. We never taught that the earth was flat. It was a myth concocted by John William Draper and Washington Irving. Nearly every Christian scholar, teacher, theologian, and preacher throughout history has believed the idea that the earth was spherical. And that story about Christopher Columbus having a showdown with some Catholic cardinals about the shape of the earth, entirely false. Do you know what they disagreed about? They disagreed about the uh, size of the earth, not the shape of it. They disagreed about the size. And just to set the record straight, Everybody who's like, oh, Christopher Columbus, you know, he was such a hero facing down the church. Well, no, 
because the cardinals were actually correct. Christopher Columbus believed the earth was smaller, and the cardinals believed that the earth was bigger. Draper and Irving fabricated history. They lied in an attempt to discredit and destroy Christianity because they were empowered by Satan. Anybody who lies is using the tool of Satan. <coughs> this is what our enemies do. They lie. Satan and his demons lie, and those who follow them, knowingly or unknowingly, do exactly as their father, the devil, does. They lie. And this is important for us to understand as Christians. Our enemy, Satan, has made allies in this world. Not just in this world, but also in the spiritual realm. He has allies, not just angels, but he has human allies. So much bad teaching has come from one of the verses of Scripture that comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. People have lectured on that verse extensively, saying, We have no human enemies! That's not what that verse says. It says that our greatest battle, the greatest war that we fight, is a spiritual one. It's beyond just flesh and blood. This verse does not preclude the possibility of enemies. If we had no earthly enemies, no physical enemies, why in the world would Jesus teach us to pray for our enemies? It makes no sense. We have human enemies who are on Satan's side, knowingly or unknowingly. But the great war that we fight is bigger than just flesh and blood. Make no mistake, we do have the physical enemies, but they're not the biggest and greatest threat to us. Our greatest threat, our greatest adversary, the enemy behind all our enemies, the general leading the army on the other side is Satan. And our greatest adversary, here's the scary thing about him, is that he is able to take on various forms. That if we saw him, we may not recognize him if we don't know what to look for, if we're not listening for the lies. Scripture says that he can come as an angel of light, and we know that he can come dressed as a serpent, and other scriptures describe him as a dragon and as a lion. He can take various forms and show up in different ways. And as such, we need strong weapons to fight him. Weapons that are bigger than physical ones. We need weapons that are able to fight a spiritual battle. A sword is a good weapon in the right circumstances. But a sword is useless against an enemy that is not physical. A gun is a good tool when we have it as Christians and use it in the right way to defend ourselves and defend those who cannot defend themselves. But what good is a gun against Satan or his demons? It may stop their human allies, as we've seen in various world wars, but it cannot stop that which is not physical. Therefore, as Christians, we must arm ourselves with spiritual tools and weapons that can defeat spiritual foes. 
And since we've just learned that Satan is by nature a liar and uses lies since the very beginning as his greatest weapon against us, the greatest weapon we have against him is truth. The greatest weapon we have against him is truth. Knowledge. Accurate information. Through these things, we can cut through the lies. We may bleed out the ignorance. We may show Satan for what and who he really is, that he is a liar and a murderer who wants to kill us all. And over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of the lies that Satan tells. We can only defeat him with the truth if we first know the lie that he is attacking us with. We're going to look at the tools that he uses, the lies that he speaks, so we will know how to fight back. We will equip ourselves with various implements of the armor and weapons of God. And today, I want you to know, if you've been lied to by Satan, you're not alone. We have all been deceived. We have all been lied to. Our first parents were lied to and deceived. We've all been taken in by his tricks and his tactics for a long time. But let me tell you that right now, you can have freedom. You can have freedom from the lies and freedom from the deception. You can be forgiven for the terrible things that you've done because of the lie. We all may. Because we have access to the truth. Not just the truth, lowercase t, but the truth, capital T. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. See, Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. God is truth. In him is no deception. Scripture actually says that it is impossible for God to lie. Did you know that? It's impossible for God to lie because it goes against his very nature. It denies the very nature of God's existence and being. His He in his substance, in his nature, he is the very essence of truth. From him all truth flows. What is truth, you may wonder? It's a good question. It always broke my heart when I read scripture in the New Testament when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate. Pilate, who didn't want to really kill Jesus, he didn't find any fault in him, he asked Jesus at one point, he says, what is truth? Such a depressing question when he's staring the living truth face and doesn't see it. Guys, today truth is staring you in the face. Jesus is truth. You want to know the way out of your troubles and your hardship. You want to know the way out of whatever is holding you captive. The only way out is through Jesus Christ. And today if you're thinking about that you want that freedom, you want that life, you want truth. I want you to come find me after service. Let's talk. But maybe right now you've been thinking about this for a while. You've been contemplating and meditating. You've been studying and you want the truth right now. You're ready to make the decision. 
We're going to have a time of decision right now. You could say, I accept the truth that Jesus is truth. We're going to have a time where you can confess that he is Lord and receive that truth. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, won't you stand? Won't you come forward as we stand and sing? Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.